Hey, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today we are finishing a series called Breaking Through the Busy, where we have been talking about the importance of making sure that we protect certain priorities that God has for our lives from being crowded out by our busyness. But before we get into this final sermon in the series, let's just take a little bit of time and pray together. Father, thank you for another Sunday to come and join with your people in praise, another Sunday to look at your words in Scripture. God, we have two things we want to pray for specifically today. First, we pray for our upcoming churchwide series that starts next week. For those who are in groups, we ask that you help them form deep connections and have great conversations. For our time on Sunday mornings, help it be uh, um, edifying and encouraging. May we invite people to come and have them have great experiences. We do also want to lift up our team that is in the Dominican Republic today. Uh, they are down there doing medical clinics and dental clinics and trying to help this local church that we're partnered with gain traction in their neighborhood. We pray that you use our efforts to help this church. We ask that you bless the time there, that people may come to faith in you and that our people may have uh, a chance to align themselves more and more with your desire for their lives. We're thankful for the opportunity. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, so far in this series, we have talked about our need to protect things like worship, serving, community from this onslaught of busyness that all of us face in our lives. And our topic today, we're looking at another purpose that God has for our life, but we're actually changing course a little bit. Because while we've been talking about protecting things from busyness, our topic today isn't something that I think our busyness tends to ruin Instead, I think it is something that tends to get crowded out because of how overwhelming and oftentimes intimidating it can feel to us. And that is the purpose of sharing our faith. Now, if you're like, oh, dang it, wrong Sunday to show up to church. <laughs> I, I want to let you know, I'm actually up here as a sympathetic voice. Evangelism is something for me that historically has made me incredibly uncomfortable. The thought of purposefully working towards sharing my faith with others sometimes has left me with my stomach churning. Part of that's my personality. I'm introverted. I don't like feeling like I'm breaking rules or making other people uncomfortable. I'm not particularly fond of, of meeting strangers or striking up conversations with people that I don't know very well. Actually, I feel awkward enough having conversations on like a daily basis with people. So like <laughs> add a little bit of evangelism in there and it becomes a super awkward kind of day for me. And because of that, sharing my faith has been something that is more of a giant burden to be avoided than a God-given purpose to be engaged in. In fact, in my early 20s, this is just a story to illustrate what I mean, my great-grandma was dying. She was 103. Her body was just kind of given up on her, and I didn't, I didn't know where she stood with Jesus. So I decided, hey, I've, I've never heard my grandma talk about her faith. I've never heard her mention her church. I just want to go. I want to visit with her. And I want to see where she stands with Jesus. So I went to go pay her visit. 
my stomach had some butterflies. My hands were like nervous, clammy. I sat in my car and was like, you got this, James. Get in there. Share some Jesus with her. So I went in. I sat down next to her bed. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't ask her what she thought about Jesus. I just felt so awkward and weird that I never brought it up. So I left the room feeling defeated and honestly kind of like a terrible Christian. I wasn't even willing to tell my grandma about this Jesus guy who had changed my world. That's often the tension that those of us who struggle with evangelism feel. We know its importance. We have people in our lives who we desperately want to know Jesus, but being the person who tells them about it, that's the hard part. And the more I talk with churchgoers, the more I hear stories like this where people say, I know how important it is for me to share my faith, and there are people in my life that I want to share my faith with, but I just can't seem to bring myself to do it. It's so awkward. And what if they ask questions that I don't have the answers to? And I don't want them to think that I'm weird. And what if they stop liking me and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable? Anyone ever felt any of those things? Yeah, many of us have. My experience with sharing our faith is that it's not our over-busyness that keeps us from sharing. It's some sort of internal struggle. We don't want to feel weird. Maybe there's some shame about how we're living our lives and we don't feel qualified. Maybe we think it's something for other people or not for us. All sorts of things that keep us from doing it. Well, today we're going to look at a story in the book of Acts that I personally have found really helpful when we think about how to share our faith. I hope that when we read this together that you're going to see a couple things. First of all, I hope that you see that evangelism doesn't have to be this scary, overwhelming thing. Because when we shift our perspective to see evangelism as an intentional but normal part of our lives that is mostly done over a long period of time and is more dependent on what God is doing than on what we do, and when we see it as something that doesn't require deep theological knowledge, it really only requires some prayer and a personal understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. When we start to understand those things, and it changes evangelism from being an impossibly monumental task to something that's just a part of our regular existence. And so we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. We're going to read a lot today. I apologize up front. There's a lot of reading. So it might be helpful if you get your Bible out or if you use the Bible app, you can pull it up on your phone so that you can read along and try and keep paying attention. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now, background on this story, the Apostle Paul, he is on one of his journeys where he's going around the world sharing the message of Jesus with Jews and Gentiles. And he shows up in a little town. It's not a little town. He shows up in a big town called Ephesus. And this is how the story goes. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. 
He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. All right, what's happening here is Paul's on this evangelistic journey. He shows up in Ephesus, which is a town in modern-day Turkey, and Paul had a pretty standard procedure when he came to a new city. His first goal, whenever he showed up to a new place, was to find a group of people that would have a sympathetic ear that he would try and turn into his team. And in Ephesus, he finds some people, presumably Jews, who were following the teachings of John the Baptist. And so uh, they had been baptized as a sign that they turned from their old way of life and turned to John's teachings, but they didn't really know this Jesus guy. So Paul tells them all about Jesus and how Jesus is the one that John was talking about, which prompts them to get saved, baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. And this ends up becoming the first group of Christ followers in Ephesus, and also it becomes Paul's team in ministry there. Acts goes on to say, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. So Paul's first thing he does is he tries to get some sympathetic ears. But almost always the second thing that Paul would do when he showed up to a city was that he would start teaching in their local synagogue. Now, Paul himself, he's a pretty accomplished Jewish scholar and teacher. He knows the ways and the customs of the Jews. And on top of that, he felt a certain responsibility to try and help his people understand that the God they believed in had shown up in the person of Jesus and was revealing and had revealed how God fulfilled his promises to them. So Paul, he spends three months in Ephesus teaching in the synagogue about who Jesus was, only to be completely rejected by his fellow Jews. So they run him out of the synagogue, and what does he do? Well, he's like, hey, if they don't want to have any part of what we're doing, let's turn our attention to the Gentiles. So Paul took the disciples, those who had come to believe in Jesus, with him, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. I want to pause here and notice something really important. None of what happened in Ephesus happened quickly. One of the misunderstandings that we often have with evangelism is this idea that evangelism is a specific event. We're going to go out, we're going to share our faith at some particular event or moment in time, and then it will be done and finished. Evangelism accomplished. You might think, I'm going to tell my coworker about Jesus today by sharing the five spiritual laws, and in that moment, they're then going to pray a prayer of faith, and voila, evangelism done. Or I'm going to send this message on Facebook to my Uncle Andy who needs to hear it. And he's going to listen and have a miraculous change of heart about Jesus. And boom, evangelism done. We often think of evangelism as a thing that we do at a particular moment in time. 
But that's not how it works here. Notice that Paul spent over two years engaged in trying to help people see who Jesus was. Over two years of daily intentional effort. There were no gimmicks. There were no fake $100 bills that share the gospel message for you to include with your tip to your server. There were no five spiritual laws to hand out. No special programs or methods that promise quick results. Instead, Paul was committed to living day in and day out in such a way that would help others see who Jesus was. Sharing our faith, it starts by trying to daily live in such a way that helps people eventually see who Jesus is. And this usually takes time. And we see that with Paul. He did not have immediate success. Instead, his ministry is marked by consistent effort done over a very long period of time. What we see for Paul is that ministry is more like a crock pot than it is like a microwave. What I mean is that it's not one event that we muster up the energy to do once. It's something that we approach with intentionality, oftentimes over long periods. Now, I want to make this point because, for one, I think it offers a needed correction for how we think about evangelism, but it also gives us some really important encouragement. So if you're sitting here thinking, I've been praying for my kids for years. I've been inviting my neighbor to church for months. I've been trying to help my neighbor see Jesus for so long to help my spouse come to know faith for the entirety of our marriage. I want you to hear this. You're doing the right thing. It takes time. Now, it doesn't just take time. It also requires intentionality. I say this because I don't want you to be thinking like, aha, Pastor James, he said it's going to take time for my neighbors to find Jesus. I'm just going to sit back and see what happens because it takes time. <laughs> it's not how it works. We may not be going to the public hall to teach about Jesus every day, but we do need to put in the work of loving others, of making our faith obvious, of asking good questions, of praying for people. Sharing our faith, it's something that takes time and consistent effort. But more important than this, sharing our faith requires God to be at work. Check out what happens next in our story. This is my favorite part of this passage. It goes a little bit like this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. <laughs> this is an awesome part. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So weird. This is such a weird part of our story. You, here you have the seven sons of Sceva, this Jewish priest, and they're thinking, hey, this Paul guy, he's making a name for himself by using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. Maybe, just maybe, we can do the same thing. 
So they go to a demon-possessed man, and they say, In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I demand that you come out. The next part, it's like straight out of a horror story. The evil spirit who's inhabiting this man responds, this is how I imagine in my mind, I know who Jesus is. You know, that's, that's what I, <laughs> he's like, I know who Jesus is. I've heard of Paul, but who the heck are you? Now, if you're in that situation, that's when you hightail it and run. Like you get out of there as quick as you can. But I don't think the sons of Sceva were, were track stars because the man with the evil spirit turns into like a UFC fighter and just beats the jeepers out of all seven sons of Sceva. And I love how Acts describes it. It says, he gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Translated into modern English, the demon-possessed man beat the pants out of all seven sons of Sceva. I think that's where that phrase comes from. I want you to think about how you'd explain that to your wife when you got home too. It's like, well, hun, I thought I could cast out the demons in the name of Jesus, who I don't actually know Jesus, but I thought it's like a magic praise. But instead, the demons beat me senseless, and that's where my pants ended up. (laughs) So here's why this story is included in Acts, though. It's not just a fun, weird factoid that they wrote to keep the story interesting. This story marks the turning point in the Jesus movement in Ephesus. Because when everyone starts to hear that the sons of Sceva tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, and that the demon was like, hey, I know Jesus, but who are you? It changed people's perspective on who this Jesus guy was. This demon knew who Jesus was, presumably respected him, didn't respect the sons of Sceva, but Jesus, that's a different story. And when the people get wind of this, they start taking Jesus more seriously. This is what Acts says. It says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. This is important. Paul had been working for years up to this point, tirelessly telling all the people he could about Jesus and performing miracles with little results, though, until the most unlikely event opens the hearts of those in Ephesus to hear the message of Jesus. This is the point to remember. The impact of us trying to share our faith is more about what God is doing in other people's lives than it is about how effective we are at sharing our faith. Sharing our faith has more to do with what God is doing than in our ability to share the gospel message. If you're worried about how skilled you are at talking about Jesus or whether you have all the answers to people's questions or if you are going to be able to tackle their objections, you're missing the point. It has more to do with what God is up to than how good you are talking about Jesus. But this is a second point here, and this is just as important. We need to be looking for the ways that God is making people receptive to the gospel message. You're probably not going to hear a lot of stories about like politicians, kids who are getting their butts kicked by a demon-possessed man. You might. It is election season. But... um. <laughs> sorry 
That wasn't on script. I just, um, and when you get off script, it's hard to get back on. Sorry. But every day, things are happening to people that God ends up using to make them more receptive to God's message. Be it some sort of hardship, be it some sort of blessing, some sort of life change. And we've got to be looking for those opportunities, trying to recognize when God is creating an avenue for us to share, which is coincidentally exactly what the Christians in Ephesus did. Acts says that many of those who had believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which in modern English is a lot of money. We can't always predict what's going to cause someone to consider Jesus more seriously. Here, Paul's been preaching and teaching for years, but what precipitates the major movement of Jesus in the area is the seven sons of Sceva getting beat up by a demon-possessed man. And this causes the Greeks and the Jews to be more open to Jesus. And then those who were believers started to openly confess that they had placed their faith in Jesus. And then they tried to show this new faith by burning the remnants of their old life. All of a sudden, you have this openness to Christ and the folks who end up causing the biggest impact on the city, it's not Paul. Rather, it's the everyday, normal Christians who have had their lives changed by Jesus. Verse 20 says, In this way, it's talking about these ordinary people burning their scrolls. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So here's what's happening. Everyday, normal Christians are deciding to be open about what happened to them. They're not worried about answering people's objections or if they have all of the right theological understandings. No, all they're doing is showing that Jesus has changed their lives. This is something for us to remember. When it comes to sharing our faith, we oftentimes worry, am I going to have the right answers or the right words? When in reality, all it takes is us knowing Jesus and being willing to show and tell how Jesus has changed our lives. For the Greeks in Ephesus, it was that they were wrapped up in sorcery and idol worship. But then they saw Jesus as the true way of life, and they turned from those things to Jesus and found something better than they could have ever imagined. So good, in fact, that they were willing to burn their valuable sorcery scrolls that they don't need anymore. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe your story is intense and dramatic, or maybe you just grew up always knowing Jesus. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you know him and that you've discovered that he is the giver of true life. Because I have a secret. Every person you know is looking for true life. What a testimony to be able to simply say, I was looking for life too, and I found it in Jesus. So here's what we've got so far. Sharing our faith, it's something that takes time and consistent effort, but we, we never really know what God is up to in people's hearts. That's why we need to be looking for the opportunities that God gives us 
and ready to share what Jesus has done for us. Now, one of the biggest objections that I run into most of the time from people regarding this is people say, yeah, but what if folks think that I'm weird? It's legit. What if people think that I'm weird if I tell them this? Well, Paul ran into this very thing in Ephesus. Our story continues. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So you've got Demetrius. He's upset. The message of Jesus has had such an impact in Ephesus that it's changing the economy. And these people who make their living out of carving idols, they're starting to lose business. Because you know what these new Christians aren't buying? Idols. So Demetrius, he gets all of his craftsmen buddies around and says, hey, we're going to lose our business. And all these people, if they keep turning from our god, Artemis, then she's going to end up being discredited. Acts keeps on by saying this. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture to the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we'd not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. This marks a turning point for the Christians in Ephesus. From this point forward, they became hated. Folks thought that they were weird. 
disruptors of culture. And I want to be upfront with you all today. Whoever told you that you could be a Christian and not be weird did you a disservice. It's the truth. Jesus makes us weird. There's no way around it. Just think about it. Uh, we believe in an external source of truth in a culture that says that the only source of truth that you need is yourself. We're weird. We have a sexual ethic that says that the limitations of marriage and gender are actually things that help make sexuality what it's supposed to be, rather than saying, yeah, go ahead and have sex with whoever and whenever you want. We're weird. We think that giving away a considerable portion of our wealth to the church is a good thing in a culture that screams that what makes you happy is more stuff, bigger houses, better cars. We're weird. We're called to love our enemies, become servants of all, sell our belongings and give to the poor. There is no way around it. If we take the teachings of Jesus seriously, we are going to be weird. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, with Jen Wilkin on family discipleship. In the podcast, they were talking about how to navigate when to give your kid a cell phone. Jen Wilkin's family took the stance that they waited a long time until giving their kids phones, something like they waited until their kids started driving. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but one of the co-hosts asked Jen Wilkin, she said, didn't your kids feel so weird being the only one of their friends to not have a phone at that age? And regardless of whether you agree with her decision on phone timing or not, her response is really important. She said, I think it's important for my kids to get used to being weird. Because if they want to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives, there is going to be a lot about their lives that makes them feel that way. At some point, we've got to recognize our faith makes us a little strange. In Ephesus, in fact, it made them hated. But you know what? God still used them powerfully. So if a worry about seeing like a weirdo is keeping you from trying to share your faith, it's time to embrace it. In Christ, we're weird. It's totally okay. In fact, the weird life that Jesus calls us to, it's actually the type of life that every single human on this planet was created to live. Now, to finish out, I want to flip over to the book of Ephesians to make this last point. In Ephesians, Paul is sitting in prison, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, who he had these years of crazy ministry with. And after giving some encouragement and some instruction, he closes his letter out this way. He says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. But pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Here you've got Paul, who we think of as like evangelism guru. He's got a PhD in outreach. And in a moment of vulnerability, 
what does he ask his friends to pray for? He says, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. I love this next part. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This word Paul uses to describe himself, ambassador, it's actually the word he uses to describe you and I as well. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And what I find so amazing about this is the correlation we see between the way Paul talks about his understanding of being Christ's ambassador and the way that we often perceive it. I mean, you can feel the anxiety that Paul experiences. He's saying, pray that I may speak fearlessly and that words may be given to me and that I may do what I'm supposed to. This request comes from a place that resonates with us. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And so in seeing this, that Paul is anxious about sharing his faith, we also see an important strategy for us to adopt. And that is, we need to not under underestimate the power of prayer in our attempts at sharing our faith. I want to try and bring all these pieces together by giving you Four practical ways to make sharing a regular part of your life. Three from our passage and one extra. The first is this. Make prayer priority in your outreach. I would suggest that you create a list of people that you're trying to be really intentional with. Could be your neighbors, could be your coworkers, could be a family member, a friend. And pray for that list as often as you can. Put a copy in your quiet time journal. Tape a, a copy to your dash on your car. Slip a copy into your office work drawer. And every chance you get, be praying for those people that you are intentionally trying to share with. But add to those prayers as well that God will give you the wisdom to see the ways that he is opening people's hearts to his message. Just like the sons of Sceva allowed the message to be heard, things are happening in people's lives. So be praying that you'll see those moments, and that you'll have the boldness to speak into them. Secondly, it's important when we think about sharing our faith that we consider what it looks like to integrate sharing our faith into our normal and regular life. When Paul was in Ephesus, he went to the Hall of Tyrannus every day. He made speaking at the hall just a part of his normal routine, now, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to our local hall and, and preaching every day. And I'm definitely not encouraging you to make it a habit of like setting up a little box to stand on in the break room at work and, and getting up during a coffee break and being like, attention pagans! You know, that's, that's not what I'm telling you to do. That being said, it is still important for us to think about what it should look like for us to live in such a way where we're helping others see our faith. You're going to have to figure out what that looks like for you because we all have a, a different setting, but I do want to give you just, just four places to start. One great way to try and help people see Jesus in your life is to be a listener. When people talk to you, ask good questions. Listen to what they have to say. Find out where they're at. By the way, this goes back to the whole seeing where God is at work. 
It's really hard to see where God's making a door for the gospel if you don't take time to listen to people. Secondly, talk about your church life with others. We talk about football. We talk about our vacations. We talk about work. We talk about the things that are important to us. Why not talk about your church life as well? When someone's like, hey, how was your weekend? Tell them it was great. I hung out with my small group. It was wonderful. I went to church. The sermon was boring. You know? <laughs> you can also ask people if you could be praying for them. This is a great way to make it happen. Someone share something that's going on, just say, hey, is it okay if I be praying for you? Also, this is a huge one that gets us started in trying to show people Jesus with the way we live our regular life. When you screw up, you can model Jesus' teaching by admitting when you're wrong and asking for forgiveness. This is a powerful way to show Jesus, whether you're at work or in your home. So you've got your list. You're praying for your people. You're praying for yourself. You're thinking about how you can try and show your faith in your everyday life. And the next thing to make sure you do is be prepared to share what Jesus has done for you. In our story today, the people who came to Jesus, they were prepared to share. They used to be in sorcery and and idol worship. Now they have true life in Jesus. And they showed that by burning their scrolls. An easy way to think about this is to simply tell people about what your life was like before Jesus. Doesn't have to be crazy. Could just be that there was a degree of fulfillment that you were lacking and you were searching for and you tried everything to find it and could never found it. And then you found Jesus. So tell them how you found Jesus and then let them know what your life looks like now that you have Jesus. Life before, how you found him, how he's changed your life. It can be really simple. And what's so powerful about this is that you don't necessarily have to be able to answer people's objections. You don't have to have deep theological knowledge because by sharing your experience with Jesus, you are helping people see the reality of Christ in someone's life. That's powerful. Finally, this is the fourth way we can try and share our faith. I think that inviting people to church is a tool we probably don't use enough. Bringing people into our community so that they can see our worship, they can hear us talk about Jesus, they can meet other people who are trying to live out their faith, it is a great way to get the conversation started about Jesus. Next week, we're actually starting a new series called Gold, Goats, and Justice. Should have a little, uh, maybe they didn't get restocked between services. I'm seeing some empty seats. My bad. Um, we, I'll, when you're on your way out, stop by the Welcome Center and grab one of the invite cards for our next series. Uh, it's called Gold, Goats, and Justice. It's going to be a great chance to help people have conversations about Christ. We would love for you to invite someone on your list uh, to come and be a part of that. Sharing our faith, it can be intimidating. But once we realize that it can simply be a part of our normal life, that it takes time, and that God helps make it happen, it can seem much more attainable. So, pray for your list. Think about how to live in such a way that helps people see Jesus. Be prepared to share your story. Invite other people to church. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for this opportunity to see how you worked amazingly in Ephesus. We're thankful for the way that your message is spread throughout the world. Today, we do want to pray for ourselves.
Help us see what you're doing in other people's lives. And then give us the boldness and willingness to speak into those circumstances so that people can hear about you. God, you're good to us. Help us not be afraid to tell that to others. We pray today that you use our church to reach this community. We pray this in your name. Amen.